What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Yes. I figured out why Jason has a website. Why is that? He's not exactly the easiest bloke to talk to. Well, let's try that. Hello. Can I speak to uh, Jason Buffhead Furman, please? Uh, what are you doing, you? Well, you heard it here, folks. That's the kind of treatment you'll get if you actually dial Jason from Mindrick Dog Clip. So what you need to do if you want any leashes, tugs, harnesses, balls, reward toys, canine fitness and conditioning equipment, Herm Springer things, anything like that, head to EinswickDogQuip.com. That's E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K.com because you do not want to have to talk to this guy. Glenn, what are you doing? I'm enjoying a delicious treat from Bright's Bites. The dog training treats? The same. I've heard that Bright's Bites are not just healthy and nutritious for dogs, but they're so delicious, they're actually a very motivational form of training. They are indeed. We've tested and tried them on site, and they work just great. How did you get a hold of those? Did you purchase them off of a website? I went to... DogSquadCanineServices.com.au That's where people should go to get themselves some bright bites, healthy, nutritious, but also highly motivational dog training treats. Get them in your dog, y'all. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And today we have the interview that everybody's been waiting for, <laughs> the one that we get the most demands for, the one we've been trying to organize for two years or however long we've been doing this for a hundred episodes or whatever it is. My favorite person on the planet, the meme queen herself, Katrina Hartwell. Hey, Katrina, how are you? Oh, I'm good, thanks. Pat's fangirling, if you didn't notice. I know, it's a little bit embarrassing, but yeah. I'm sure I can cope. It's actually <laughs> easier to get Bart Bellin on the show than it is to get you. That's really sad. <laughs> He's been on twice or three times now, I think. And well, we've been talking about doing this forever. Mm. We've been, But you're finally here. It's the stars of a line. You're here on a Tuesday when we record and we can finally get you on the show. Absolutely. So, I don't even know where to start with you. Well, let's start at the beginning. When she first arrived, she just told us that she's been hiking glaciers in New Zealand in her shorts. Yeah. <laughs> Wim Hof style. Yeah, we gotta, I think we better start with that story. I think it was last Tuesday. I left home in central Queensland and drove down here to Sydney. Which is probably like 27 degrees or something like that. 40 degrees. 40 degrees, shit. That's so, Celsius, folks. Yeah, 40 degrees today there. Yeah, that's like uh, 110 Fahrenheit, I think. Yeah. Mm. And drove down here to Sydney. Yeah. Saw some friends and dropped a dog off and stuff along the way and saw there was cheap flights in New Zealand and jumped on a plane to Christchurch. Next minute. And I was on a bit of a mental health retreat, self-induced one, uh-huh. and thought I should do something I've never done before, so I thought I'd go and 
climb a glacier. So I drove through the snow to or through the mountains to Friends Joseph Glacier. And uh, I wasn't really dressed for the occasion. <laughs> <laughs> I've got broken ribs. They were six days healed when I went there. You've got broken ribs. Yeah. And I walked up a glacier with broken ribs and shorts and boots I'd bought the night before. and So just banged it out. And how was it? How was the view? It was amazing. I'd be back there again. It's the place to, place to ride a bike, Glenn. It's, yeah. I'd definitely be riding my bike next time. And Yeah, me and the crew have got plans to do Tasmania and New Zealand. One of the guys I ride with, Dave, he just finished riding in Japan. Like they spent 10 days over there. And uh, unfortunately, I couldn't join them because of the ICP conference and so forth. But yeah, New Zealand's definitely on the list. That and Tassie, we're definitely going. Yeah, and mm. good hunting and fishing. I'll be back for that for sure. Yeah. Aside from just climbing glaciers unprepared. <laughs> with, with your shorts. <laughs> in your shorts, with my style. <laughs> let's go back to the start. Well, no, let's go to our start. I remember first talking to you the first time when Bart first came to Australia. He was doing the seminar. And I remember you calling and asking just some details about it because it was really difficult for you to get away for two days. And I didn't really understand that. And then I was like, yeah, this is what it is. I don't know why I don't know why you need special treatment to go to this. And now <laughs> I do understand that you're running a whole station at that time and that it was a huge ordeal. But you couldn't get there. Uh, and then I met you for the first time at the Silver School in Sydney, which again – like what an ordeal for you to get to, right? And you drove down then, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I drove down. How far is the drive? Oh, no, I f- sorry, I flew the flew for silver, drove to gold. Ah, uh, that's right, yeah, that's right. And so everyone kind of had their seats and I was in the middle there and you were off to the wing there on the silver school. So I didn't really get to talk to you very much at all other than that we organised you coming. And I remember you saying to me, is it going to be all right if I go there? No one's going to be weirded out or anything. And I remember thinking, what a fucking bizarre thing to say. I don't know, like, I do not understand that. But it's because your history in dogs is is somewhat different to the majority of the room, which were either Absolutely. pet dog trainers or military working dog handlers, right? Yeah. So let's now go all the way back. How did you get into dogs? What What's the story? When I was small, we I lived here and we lived down here in Sydney, and I had a little fluffy dog that bit my brother. And um, as a baby, and we diced it, mm-hmm. and we were fortunate enough to get a, a very well-trained Schutzen boxer. Yeah, right. That was gifted to us because our owners were going back to Europe. Okay. And she was probably what got me interested in, in working dogs particularly, and not that I knew it at the time, but off-breed working dogs. Okay. And um, from there we went to... Moved around lots as a kid, but we um the only consistent in life, I guess, was dogs. Mm-hmm. I um grew up in a terribly abusive home, and between working dogs, well, stock working dogs, and hunting dogs, that's um that's your escapism. That's all I knew as a kid. That was mm. the only good thing in life, I guess. Yep. So um, I bred my first litter of pups when I was nine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see what this is going. With a bo- with a borrowed bitch, right? And um, I'm not sure why I would ever continue in breeding dogs because she had four pups. One died. She ate one, and then the other two she rejected, and I had to hand raise. Oh my god! What a start. So, good start. Good times. At nine years old. At nine years old, and then I owed I owed a a pup for the using the bitch. So you, you hand-raised the two. Yeah, hand-raised the two. And only got one. Got one. 
and I wanted a bitch, but I got a dog and he was a really good working dog. I was probably 11 or 12 and in the mid-80s I was offered $800 for him. Wow. So Yeah, that's a good fetch for a dog back then. For, especially for a hunting dog. Yeah. He wasn't anything special. Oh, he was a special hunting dog, but. What, what breed was he? He was out of it. He was, so he was, back then most of the hunting types were bully boxer cattle and he was bully boxer bull mastiff cattle okay and um i still ran that bloodline not i never bred that dog but i um still ran that bloodline sideways up until a few years ago yeah right so that's an interesting one right so i remember when we did the gold school they posted michael or bart posted online the list of all the people uh, who had passed and it was early days i think it was the second gold school or something like that well first one in australia and someone commented on it, the 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 world famous band dog breeder Katrina Hartwell, right? <laughs> like, wow, the, the world famous band dog breeder Katrina Hartwell has done the gold school. And I remember screenshotting that and sending it to you and saying, "You didn't tell me you're world famous." <laughs> <laughs> so you've obviously from nine years old. Would that count as a band dog? What you? No, bred no, he was just totally different. Okay, so give us a definition. What is a band dog? A band dog's just a crossbred dog. They're um, a blend of bull and mastiff, mm-hmm. and they should be bred primarily for temperament or working ability. That's that's the catch. Right. Not just any dog, not a dog from the pound, just not an accidental litter, a dog that's bred primarily for purpose. Uh-huh. I'd never heard of a band dog until I met you. Like, that yeah. was the my first introduction to what a band dog was. And sadly now it's like I bred my lines, and I'm proud of the dogs I produce. I mean, I guarantee my dogs, I guarantee their temperament, their health and their working ability, and I go to a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. But sadly now it's just a name to sell dogs, yeah. to sell big crossbred pups, and that's a real shame. Yeah, because my understanding before meeting you is a band dog is a crossbred dog, usually pretty large in size and with some kind of bull type breed in it, that capable of man work. That's what I would have described them as, and I wasn't really aware that there really was a, a – it is this type of crossbreed or, or well, probably mm. by the time you're done now, you wouldn't call it a crossbreed anymore at all, right? It certainly doesn't have paperwork, but you, you're not, you're probably not mixing two really genetically different things, are you? Or oh, If I found a goat that was going to add to my bloodlines, <laughs> I'd use it. Like, <laughs> I, I really like the idea of breeding crossbred dogs in the fact that, like I understand how it's viewed unethically by lots of people and like I'm cool with that. Yeah. But you can choose from any dog in the world. Yeah. There's no excuse for producing shitty dogs. Uh-huh. None. Like there's just, you can choose within a gene pool or within a a part of a gene pool for most breeds, but for these fellas, you can choose anything. It's choose your own adventure and you can make damn sure it's a good one. Like there is no excuse for it. Well, it's, it's a funny concept, this whole not introducing other species into breeds when all purebred dogs of today have been because of introducing other species into the breeds, not not other other species in general. I'm yeah. talking about other breeds of dogs into the breeds. Like if you look at the classic cattle dog or Kelpie, I mean, they've come from, you know, a combination of breeds of dogs to create a dog. The thing with breeds though is the whole point of being a breed is to be inbred, which produces really great things. It gives us that reliability and temperament, that consistency and type, you know, we streamline those working abilities and the capabilities. We can understand, we can look back at a pedigree and understand what a dog's genetic capabilities are. But it's got a downside where we 
double up on health problems and we double up on neurosis and it gives people with purebred dogs. Yeah, with yeah, purebred yeah, dogs. Yeah. It gives people the ability yep. to um, breed in extremes because we've we've lost so much genetic material along the way. Mm. And I think that breeding dogs should be about getting the balance between the the good qualities that inbreeding that that breeding within a breed give us and the good qualities that outcrossing give us as well. But I'm not the breed police. I don't care what anyone else does. But yeah, but I think if you look at the programs that are really internationally recognised as successful, you look at the say the Dutch KPV yeah. style program that breed that we something that we would refer to as Malinois, but. It's a mix. Like my dog is not a Malinois. He he. We call him that, but he doesn't. He doesn't meet the breed standard perfectly because they just want working dogs. They've been breeding dogs and they put in whatever is necessary to keep it going. And in the hunting community, where it's the they could give a shit about what exactly as you said, you'll put a goat. That's funny. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that. But it's about the end product, not what it looks like. I'm only concerned with what it looks like in that. It has the size to perform the task, right? Yeah. Rather than has the size because someone said the size should be this. Yeah, exactly. And breed breed standards leave a lot of interpretation as well. Like you can see with even your Roddy's Glen how the standard hasn't changed a lot, but the type of dog oh, it being has. produced. But it has. Has it in Roddy's? But oh, you know yeah. the, yeah. the, the written standard or the type of dog? The type of dog. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. The written standard hasn't changed incredibly, mm. but the type of dog we're seeing has changed a whole lot. So is it the written standard that's changed or is it people's interpretation of the written standard? It's people's interpretation of the written standard. And it's always going to change over time, and, and that's a good thing, mm. but we need to balance well, it with health well, and temperament. is it? When we take it to extremes, it's not. Mm. I think Rottweiler is the it's the, the example I use all the time, and I know we have Rottweiler people that listen, and I know this will upset people. They're one of the worst breed because there isn't a clear distinction between working dogs and show dogs and show people think their dogs can work and you can make a dog appear to work by making it a little bit nervy. And so look, he's got the temperament to guard or he shows some forward aggression and the breed standard doesn't actually test that. It tests a dog really that displays a bit of nerve. And so they're the show line people uh, then say they have a working lion dog or, or a dog capable of work because it displays working temperament, but their measure of working temperament doesn't involve any biting and it doesn't involve any pressure. It's just a display of nerve. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I think the Rottweiler is one of the worst breeds for that. So like, you know, you look at a Malinois, like a show line Malinois and a working line Malinois, they're very, they're, you, it's the same as Shepherd. You, you notice them at a distance. You can pick them at a distance and go that one's one and one's the other. And show line people don't pretend that their dogs are anything other than show line dogs and working line people don't pretend that their dogs are any other. But I think the Rottweiler, from my experience, is the one breed that really does merge the two and it's not for the benefit of the breed. It's actually It used to be, but it's fallen off the wayside. But do you think now? that's because of the test? Like because it, like we were at that that show and there's no biting. Like you don't know No, there's no biting. There's just so you you can't test workability and protection unless the dog actually gets to protect. Mm. But what is the modern interpretation of working? Like Yeah, that's can, That's are a great we question. Doing such a disservice to dogs by breeding dogs with exceptional working temperaments like we're stacking the cards to make those dogs get rewarded or intrinsically rewarded from you know the task that we're designed them to do 
and then we put them into a society that can't meet their needs for that task. 100%. Yeah. And, that, and that's what it's become. With owners who, who have no ability at all to to handle a dog like that, that's mm. the that's the difficult part path that I walk with my band dogs. I need to have a stable dog above all else. Yeah, well yeah. put. Mm. Which, you know, my testament, I've seen plenty of your dogs and that's exactly what they are, a stable above everything else. And, you know, we had one here uh, that we're trying to put some, like, how old was that dog? It was eight or 11 months old or yeah, something. Yeah, it was only a baby. It's hard to tell because they're so big that it's hard to get a gauge on how old they were. And he wasn't displaying a lot of prey drive at that age and then didn't even have any, you couldn't upset the dog. We couldn't couldn't get a, d- a defensive display out of him. Uh, now that's age and I know that's going to come later. Uh, but stable above everything was just uh, you, you could not upset the dog. That dog hadn't been socialised at all in the first five and a half months of his life. He'd never left the place and he'd never seen another human but me when B picked him up. Yeah, pretty amazing, right, to then so, be that stable and, and totally comfortable everywhere he went to the point where yeah. he couldn't get a uh, a react, a defensive reaction out of him. No, and not a fear reaction either. He just no, no, he just was like, whatever. What are, you, what are you pulling those funny faces at me for? Why are you stalking me? This is hilarious. Um, and not like dodgy people do it, like legit some of the world's best pe- decoys trying to stalk him and he just was like, I'm not, I'm not threatened by that. that. That's not a problem for me. Now, I know that will come later as Absolutely. maturity and whatever, but talk about stability, that's fucking stable dog. And that's um, what, I mean, that's what I think we should all, I mean, I understand that there's a whole different range of jobs for dogs that need a whole different range of temperaments. But I really think that as breeders, if we're going to put our dogs into homes with families or homes with people, or homes in general, yeah, we should be looking for stability. It comes back to the concept of building strong and solid and deep foundations. And if, mm-hmm. without that, you can't build structure on top of it. I guess it's one of many things that a lot of people have overlooked so poorly before is they race the foundation. It's always dodgy and it's always built on compromised grounds. And then- for the future of the dog, you've got a compromised future on top of that as well. Once you start with compromise, you end with compromise. Yeah. And that's the issue with it as well. And that's where we're seeing problems with dogs in general. It's mainly resolved around greed and ego. And they're the two issues that get in the way of producing good dogs. But it's hard not to have your ego involved in breeding dogs. Like I have to step back and remind myself all the time, like, am I doing this for me or am I doing it for that individual or I do it for am I doing whatever I'm doing for that entire type of dog? Like am I – I've diced lots of bloodlines and sometimes it's really hard to, you know, let go and think, well, I'll get that dog back again in three generations if only I keep doing. Someone gave me a piece of advice once that said you should never breed a dog that you wouldn't inbreed on itself. You know, like they were talking about doesn't have qualities that if they're doubled up in the future mm-hmm. – would you still want to own that dog? Like, mm. are you just breeding shit and being happy with it, or are you truly breeding us from a stable foundation and a solid dog? I have to remind myself of that a lot. Yeah, that's a pretty good. Um, that's a that's a little gem. That one. I'm going to put that in my arsenal when I start <laughs> accusing people of breeding bad dogs and asking them why they breed it. I think that's interesting when we talk about crossbred dogs or, or dogs of without FCI pedigrees. Really, uh, I often sort of. A lot of the times people do that breeding because they're the two dogs that they have. 
right? Yeah. And so that's why these are the two being bred because this is what I have. And I really like what you said before about you can pick any dog on the fucking planet. If you're going to, if you're going to uh, crossbreed dogs, you can literally do it with any two dogs. Don't compromise. I think that's a really good, um, that's a good mantra to have. But so the dogs that you're breeding mostly uh, and what you, what you do with dogs mostly, let's talk about that. So tell us about your hunting dogs and what they hunt and, and, and how you got to this point. I do just about anything you can possibly imagine with, I give anything a go. Uh-huh. I've um, worked in the security industry with my dogs. I've done canine search and rescue. I've worked in therapy in schools, therapy in hospitals, in palliative care. I've done a reading program with dogs. I competed in canine pro sports, competed in traditional obedience. I've done, I've hunted dogs. I've hunted plenty of pigs. I've worked rough cattle with hanging dogs. I've worked cattle and sheep with dogs. I've got a Yag Terrier at the second that's off tap that kills everything small that I'd ever want it to and lots of things that I don't, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Is that Raccoon that's John? That's Raccoon John. He's yeah. um, a killer. Raccoon of John. <laughs> he's, um, he's the toughest little dog I think I've ever owned. He's, um, he's heaps of fun. But it's got a magic recall, but we'll kill anything you point him in the direction of. Yeah, right. And do it with style too. So hang on. You've got to tell me why he got called Raccoon John. Does he look like a raccoon or? No, his um, registered name is Samba Man's Raccoon. Mm-hmm. And my girls went down to pick up a crate for me from Alex and decided, you know what mum would really like? A yag. <laughs> so they bought me, my two older girls bought me a yag home as a present, which uh, I don't know whether they really like me or really don't like me. Yeah, yeah. And um, they would just put a bit of a handle on him when he's a pup. He's wild, like he's. He's tiny, a tiny, tiny dog. He's about six or seven kilos. Yeah. And he's wild as they come, but. So he's, like he's as big as a fox terrier or something like that. Yeah, like a mini foxy size. Wow. Like he's. Oh, Didn't you see him like a year ago when she had him down here as a pup? Like mm-hmm. how was he then? He was like four or five months old then. Yeah, yeah. I saw him, but he was a pup. Yeah, yeah. yeah he didn't get much bigger. Oh, wow. Okay. He's a little tiny dog. Like yeah. he's half the size of your little. Um, Ladybug? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that is a little dog. But tough, like super, super tough. He's been raised in the Nepopo system, though, to give him some credit. Uh-huh. But genetically, he's a tough dog. That's good. You yeah. took it to the max. Yeah. he's um like, And I've kept him wild. Like, I've kept him that. He's got very he – he'll recall off anything, and that's his – about the extent of his obedience. But I can recall him off anything at any time because he, and he doesn't understand why. Yeah, yeah. It's reflex. He just yeah. turns around, yeah. So what are the origins of a Jag Terrier and why were they introduced as a breed? They're just a German hunting. As far as I know, like they're not my breed. I just got gifted it, but they're a German hunting terrier and they're nearly cannon fodder. Yeah. They hunt boar and badger and. Wow. So they're just fearless and they'll just go through anything. Tiny and fearless and difficult to own. Like I would not suggest that anyone would should own one <laughs> ever. And what would one pay for a Yag Terry if they were insane and they felt like a challenge? The breeder, I think there's two breeders in Australia and I know one of them screens people Pretty really early. well. I know yeah. that. Um, Obviously not your daughters. No, well he actually got on really well with them and went, oh, mum hunts too and, you know, was was into what he was into and they thought he was a sweet old man and yeah. <laughs> a reputation for being a bit grumpy and 
Told him that told him that it was going to the world famous band dog breed, <laughs> the meme queen herself, <laughs> Katrina Hartwell. Uh, yeah, so he's um he's a very cool dog. But they're fifteen. I think I my girls paid fifteen hundred for him. I think and yeah, it's a niche dog. There's yeah. not too many people that should have one. I know someone who had one in town and kept him in a wheelie bin because he barked all night. So <laughs> Jesus Christ! Unless you're working them like there's no tomorrow, they're not. Yeah, not a I think dog. I'll cut that part out. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they're a real work dog that really yeah. is a terrier in the real sense, right? Yeah. Like to designed to hunt out and kill small animals. Absolutely. Yeah, which where you're at is is a necessary I thing. I throw him in shipping containers and stuff to kill mice rats. and rats, and yeah, he'll um he's discovered cane toads, which was a bit of a problem for a while. Yeah, did we fix that? Mm. He was um he'd get so um. He gets so intoxicated from them that he'd become paralysed and nearly stop breathing and wipe his mouth out and he'd stagger and go again and try and put him on the kill. Oh, so, um, my God. We had to uh, finish that pretty quick. Yeah. So well, if you're listening, don't run out and buy a Yag Terrier. Do not get one. What was the dog that Mike Suttle was hunting? Paddedale. Paddedale. Yeah, yeah, different mm. different. It's breed. a very similar sort mm. of yeah. thing. They almost look similar. I think that they're, they're like Paddedales to look at. Paddedales are English Terriers. And yeah. Boy, it wasn't Mike. Brave posting that online. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But to look at like the Patterdales have a much smaller head. The Yags, their their head is as big as their body. Mm. It's a yeah. it's ridiculous to Eden was talking about getting them, wasn't he? Had he's, one. Got yeah. one. Yeah. he's got oh, one. Oh, he's got Otto, one. Yeah. Otto's his dog. His dog's yeah. a very different type to mine. He's a much much bigger and less driven dog. Yep. Still a cool dog. I mean still too much for most people, but yeah. probably a mechanism of the raising though, right? Like Absolutely. I've let my fella be wild and Eden's quite strong on young dogs. Yeah. I want to sort of go back another step into the hunting stuff because we, when we talk, when we said I want to get someone on to talk about pig hunting and you said, oh, we'll talk to Tonks and we have, right? Yeah. But now I want to hear about your sort of uh, journey into that. How long have you been doing that and the dogs that you've, you've obviously been breeding for that a lot, right? Because you've yeah. got a lot of dogs all over the place that were bred specifically for that by you and, and people seek you out as a person they would come to if they get, want to start a, a, a pig dog, right? Well, sometimes I've kind of moved a little bit out of that now compared to where I was. I've been pig hunting for 35 years. Mm-hmm. I first started like everyone back then you know, with um, – I didn't own most of the dogs. Like I just went along hunting every opportunity I got and people were probably a little bit more willing to take a kid out to – do all the shit jobs like open gates and carry hobbles and and I've always had a little bit I've always studied so I had a little bit of you know dog first aid skills and mm-hmm. had something to offer so my dog got a lot of work and uh I got a lot of pigs I progressed through that I left school when I was 15 to um go professional roo shooting mm-hmm. and chase pigs and shot roos and welfare took me away <laughs> and that probably wasn't why they took me away but anyway they um I got back into it over again over the years you know like yeah, yeah. after I get out of foster care and it was um I guess in, if you live where I lived in western Queensland it was one of the biggest industries that yeah. in town so I've always trying to kept kept my hand in it as much as I could that's an interesting point Katrina and I've I've mentioned this on the show before is that if you make yourself useful to people, it's funny, it starts opening doors to you. And you just pointed that out. Now, I think that's an important point for people who are listening to the show because we were over in the ICP recently and there were, you know, younger people that I was talking to were starting off their careers and they were saying, oh, how do you do this and how do you do that? 
And and that's one of the main answers that I have to people is make yourself useful. You know, don't just turn up and expect that people are going to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to give you all my knowledge and train you. You know, go and open gates and carry pick things. Pick up dog and shit. That's pick up that. dog shit. You know, like be be useful to the person you want to mentor under. Like don't be a drain to them. Be actually show them that you're a person of credibility, that you're actually, you know, willing to turn up early, willing to, you know, hold the bags, willing to open the doors. That stuff's important stuff as well. You know, it, it, it contributes to the efforts. And be prepared to, like I've had, I could probably list 20 or 30 people I consider my mentors and I can't think that there's any of them that I currently don't talk to or, you know, the fellows that are still alive, I've still got great friendships with. Mm. And I think it's important. So some of my mentors are very opposed in their views. Mm-hmm. I would consider Bart's view of training dogs dynamically opposed to some of the other people I've mentored under. But it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it. People are just showing you your way, and I think we've got to be prepared to be kinder to our mentors as well. You know, like we've they've given us that information. Don't burn them if you find something else out. Mm-hmm. Understand that they were giving us, you know, giving us what they had at the time. Exactly. That's a good solid message because there's an evolution in training. Some people are rigid in it and they stay with it forever. They don't see a need to change it. They have no um, desire to be flexible. There's other people who see it as a constant evolution and think, well, I know what I know right now, but you know, who's to say that there's not going to be new science or new material in five years' time that I should be migrating across to? And then other people see it and they go, well, yeah, it's interesting science, but what I'm doing is working well for what I've got at the moment. So, you know, I've, I've met people who haven't changed much in a long period of time because there's no need to what they're doing. And it, it falls back onto the concept, well, a doctrine that I like to use myself, which is use what works. And yeah. if, it's, if it's working for you, then use it. But in the same spectrum, I always say to people, at least consider what others have got. Like, look at it and don't be so diametrically opposed to it that when you see it, you go, it's just shit, I'm not going to use it. Like, look at it and go... It's good for you, but I don't think that it would be practical for what I want to use. I'll put that in my toolbox in case I need it later. Exactly, yeah. Going back to pig hunting, in 2003, two or three, there was a push to ban pig hunting. Yeah, right. A big push. There's another one at the second. Why is that? Welfare? like all industries, the hunting industry's got some welfare issues that we police well from inside. Mm Mm-hmm. But there's always outliers and there's always people who, you know, don't learn the right way and there's always people who are just dickheads. Like we can't The one percenters. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter whether you're talking about people in fish and chip shops or people yep. that are hunting, there's always always a dickhead in every space. Yeah. Unfortunately there's real welfare concerns for animals that are owned or hunted by people like that. And they leave carnage behind. You know they let their dogs attack stock and wildlife. They steal from people's properties. They they don't care for the environment they're hunting in. You know they're just leaving some issues there. Mm. Again, it's pub. It's punishing the masses and not the individuals. Where the individuals should be kicked up the ass quite heavily. And people like um, Ned Makem and Tonks and fellas like that are working hard to educate people from the ground up, rather than Mark Bead is another one educate people from the ground up in better standards and Mm. try and capture those people as they come in. 
Yeah, but ultimately they're environmentalists and conservationists at the same time. Like they actually care about the environment. They give a shit about it. Yeah. Where there's other people who could just burn the world and they just don't care. And, and they're the same people who kill things and don't care. That's right. And they don't, you know, they, they can do anything. They're, they're just pieces of shit. Mm. Or they haven't found a reason to care yet. And mm. that's, that's cool, but they can't be involved in hunting until they do. In 2000 and 2002, 2003, with the threat to hunting, started what's become the first round of what's now become the Australian Pig Doggers and Hunters Association. Mm-hmm. I was working with Ned Makem a little bit and Ned got a job overseas. I had a preemie baby. My giant daughter Jojo was a tiny preemie that was really sick. Yeah, right. Which is hard to believe now. Yeah, you see I was say. <laughs> so, you know, life got in the way. That was – I wrote the initial – Code of practice for hunting. Mm-hmm. And the very first meet, I think it was about 2005, we had the very first meeting. The 16 of us went, came down into New South Wales, Texas, I think, somewhere down there, either southeast Queensland or northern New South Wales. And we had a meeting. And from that, the APDHA was born. Which is what? What's the, the Australian Pig Doggers and Hunters Association. So it's a an association with a few goals. One of them is to ensure that ethical hunting continues, mm-hmm. to improve welfare standards for both pigs and for and for dogs and all around standards for everyone. Um, to liaise with government bodies and hunters, and they've done some. I haven't been. In, I was a life member in two thousand and seven. I think they made me a life member. I was a secretary initially. Life got really busy. We started a business and I just didn't have time to devote to it anymore and it was really – the association was growing rapidly and it needed someone who could devote more to it to take over. So I stepped aside, not sure what year, one of those years, and the boys have continued and done just a wonderful job. Our, um, the associate, It's not my association anymore, but I'm still a member. Mm-hmm. It's opened up different types of hunting in New South Wales, um, made hunters part of the R licence program down here, I think. It's opened hunting in state parks. It's liaised with, I see there's an African swan fever alert that came out the other day. The APDHA is liaised with the Northern Territory Government because African swan fever has made it to Timor. Wow. It's 100% mortality rate in pigs, so it's pretty hectic stuff. I'm glad you explained it because I knew nothing about it. And, I'm um, just trying to sound knowledgeable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go on. Tell us a bit more about that because yeah. that's like what is it? What does it do? If it, It'll destroy the Australian pork industry if it gets here. and Like domestic wild, and feral. Domestic. But the wild pigs are such a – they have such an ability to carry that disease and spread it really rapidly that yep. um, that'll be the first population that signs are noticed in. Yep. So the is it zoonotic? Does it pass to humans at no, all? No, not to humans or dogs, not like brucellosis, which is also a bit of a problem. Mm. But it, educating hunters allows them to be the eyes and ears mm. for those zoonotic outbreaks, you know, or for those, sorry, for those exotic disease outbreaks. Yep. It allows them to be, I mean, they're there in the field. They're going to notice the signs and symptoms. Are they going to see, you know, a mob of pigs dead somewhere and be able to report it? But that's what I mean, right? Like hunters are not just people with a bloodlust. They're actually people who care about the environment. Good hunters have respect for their quarry. Absolutely. 
They respect the land. They respect the quarry. They respect the numbers. And, I mean, my uncle, when I was a kid, he used to always explain to me that the job of a good hunter is to leave the land in a better way than what you found it. That's yep. what he always used to say when we went out hunting. You know, we used to talk – because I used to be opposed to shooting rabbits when I was young. And I used to ask my uncle, why? Why would we shoot bunnies? And he said, well, they're an introduced pest. And he said, you know, like they leave holes all over the place. He said stock break their legs on them and stuff like that. And he said, you know, they eat the vegetation. They compete against the environment for our native species. And our job as a hunter is to remove a pest and to leave the land in a better state. That's what he used to always tell me as a kid. God bless him. And it's true. We, mm. If we're not, without sounding like a, a greeny hippie, because I'm certainly not. I'm far <laughs> from it. <laughs> we need to start looking after everything around us like unless we're looking after our environment then we're just going to destroy it further like yeah not, i think it's a really else. it's a really um important point you bring up there that the the hunters for like in the pig pig hunters are the eyes and ears of what's going on in the wild population and as you say that's where an outbreak will happen right it, when yeah. if and when what did you say it was african swine fever african swine fever right it's that's a bit scary that it got to timor uh especially for the timorese because that that's going to be a huge impact to them, Well, right? it, it impacts on their ability to get protein. Like if all their pigs are wiped out, what are they going to eat? Yeah, big time problem. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, coming here, that would be a disaster. And as you say, having people who are out in the wild population regularly and keeping an eye on and noticing the change. And then, so what, they've developed a reporting chain for these guys to, to yeah, come so back through? I believe that they're just going to report on the same system as anyone can report on. It's just that their access is there, you know, and yeah. the- their ability to notice changes in behaviours there. Whereas if someone else is driving along and sees some pigs, they're going to go, oh, pigs just do that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's a really unusual Mm behaviour. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool that that's that's there and established. And and, uh, that organisation, that's still going strong today, right? It's huge now. I couldn't give you stats on membership or anything like that, but they've come along in leaps and bounds since a tiny little group of people got together and, yeah, right. Tried to protect hunting. And you were one of those tiny little groups. See, I'm learning yeah. about you. I didn't know <laughs> that. Uh, this is this is news for me. You know, it's great that the government is actually liaising well with them and listening to what they're saying. I'm often critical about the behaviour of governments, but when they do actually have a seat at the table with these guys and guys and girls, I should say, when they actually have a seat at the table with them and they're listening to what they're saying and actively making inroads for these processes and rather than just opposing everything and trying to have the popular vote all the time, that's very, you know, Pat talked about being progressive the other day in a, in a podcast we did, but that's active progression, you know, like that's for good reason. And I've got to tip my hat to people or the politicians who are listening to those groups. Yeah, there's some good ones. I mean, there's some who listen there are some to good green ones. groups and yeah. there's some, I guess it depends where you source your information from. Yeah, exactly. So I want to keep talking about you, right? So, because you're my my favourite person. Let me let me let me let me explain why. Because I don't think I ever have. No. So uh, when I first met you, we were at the Silver School, and it was clear, like you said, you'd never trained with food before. You'd never been exposed to that type of dog training, and you sat there and took it all in. And I was really uh, impressed by that. There was no opposition to it. Now you might have felt that. I don't know. You might. No, have no, thinking, no. I was there to learn. Yeah, perfect, right? So I was like, okay, because this is radically different. I remember we spoke sort of briefly at the end of it and you were telling me how it was radically different to everything that you'd ever been involved in before, which I thought was really cool, right? And, and, and you found ways to implement it without letting go of everything you'd done before because it's yeah. not wrong, it's different. So I thought that was cool. 
the the second time I decided I really really liked you was when you tried to fight that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know this story. Oh, you were there. So it was like it was forty two degrees or something or forty six. It was it was crazy hot, and we'd finished. Tra- uh, training oh, this was for the, the other location I couldn't mm-hmm. make. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So we'd finished training for the day, and we'd gone down to the the pub to have a drink after. And Katrina brought her car down, and. It's hot everywhere. There's no avoiding the hot. But you had ice. Yeah, my dogs had ice mats and water and Yeah, so they're in the back of her car, but they're from a they're from a place where it is that hot. And every precaution that could be taken, the dogs are more comfortable than us, right? Because we're sitting out in the sun and it was five in the afternoon, right? And some nosy fucking dude decided he was going to go over. And because you've got all your branding all over, it's got your mobile number and everything. And he's taken photos of it. And he's obviously going to get on the Facebook high horse. Uh, and when you <laughs> went over there and, and offered to put him to sleep, <laughs> it was one of the fucking most glo- – he shit himself. He crumbled and went to water. And it was one of the best things I've ever seen. And it was nice to him to start with. I said, have you got a problem with my dogs, mate? Which Bart tells yeah. all the time. It was hilarious. <laughs> And he had a go and Yeah. It was one of the best exchanges. Fuck you, dude. Yeah. It was one of the best exchanges I've ever seen. Mm. And uh, the dude just crumbled and went to water. It was one of the I, I loved it. I loved it. He's a big dude. He could have beat the snot out of me though. <laughs> but he didn't. No. Uh, anyway, and so that was when I thought, oh, this chick's really cool. I quite like her. And then um we we I guess bonded over that the that black dog brandy, yeah. right? And so I had this dog who was kind of an experiment in training for me. And when to observe her, it was clear that I had put too much pressure on that dog. And I didn't argue it because I knew that I hadn't. I, I knew that I hadn't done it as, as bad as she observed. And, and I had flattened her out. But the truth is what I understand now, this is a long time ago, right? This is years yeah. ago. But what I understand now is she'd got to that point of kind of being not as enthusiastic of the work, not from pressure in the work, but from too much of it. I did way too much with her and was rewarding insufficiently. So she was technically proficient in everything she did, but she had no heart and soul. And so I knew she wasn't going to work out to be what I wanted. And I remember we were standing there. It was like the Friday afternoon. We'd been training together all week. He said, what are you going to do with this dog? And I said, I don't know. Do you want to? And (laughs) he said, yep. And I handed you the leash. (laughs) <laughs> and that was it. She's your dog. But then it turned out one of the reasons that she appeared so much more flatter than she was and why I, like I say, I didn't argue. I didn't say, no, I didn't do these things that everybody's saying I've done. Like they said, you put too much pressure on this dog. And I, I knew I hadn't, but it turned out the poor little dog was sick and dying, right? Yeah. Her organs were joining together. Yeah, she had um, adhesions in her gut and she had rents, which is really rare in dogs. It's where um, her bowel kept twisting over on itself. Mm-hmm. So she'd be sick and flat and then she'd appear to come good. And yeah. Uh, unfortunately, from a training point of view, you'd think, oh, I fixed it. Whatever yeah. I did last time, you do that again and get no results and go, well, yeah. I, that was, sorry, that was what was happening to me. No, I think it was the exact same thing. We, Glenn, you remember, right? Mm. She'd do like one day in two weeks, she'd be on fire. She'd be a great little Malinois, right? Mm. And be like, oh, we've done it. We're geniuses. We we fixed it. And then she was like a Kelpie the next day. Yeah, then the next day yeah. she'd just be flat and hating it. And and I feel sick about it. The poor little dog was, was in agony and was – was doing the best she could with how well she felt. But she never really showed it that you could, you no, could determine well, that that was the issue. That's right, right? And she'd had a couple of surgeries and that, you know, anyway. Um, so she was your dog for a while until um, which you, you, which she couldn't sustain her, right? She had a surgery, another surgery. Yeah, you. I did a, we did a huge surgery on her. We opened her up. We um, stitched all the rents, all the holes in her intestinal lining back together. We pulled out all the adhesions, flushed her and put her back together. 
it, then and she had a way with that dog had a way I feel like I feel really uh bonded to you over her because she would I never looked at her as my dog she was never going to be my dog to keep I was raising her and to sell and then when that became clear it wasn't going to happen I had to move her on to make room for another dog and but she had a way of getting in your heart that little dog yeah, didn't she, she was right a cool little dog. because I, I was really shocked that you even that you did the surgery because knowing her history and knowing that like it was a recurring thing and that it was probably going to come back and you did it. And I remember thinking, fucking hell, Katrina, what a woman, like she's, <laughs> she's done that. And then the poor little dog, how long did she last after that? Before I think it came it back? maybe another four or five months. And then when it came back, I knew how chronic it was and yeah. I opted to put it down. Yeah. I like, it wasn't, it wasn't a quality of life. No, after it was going to be, there a, was no outcome. Yeah. Mm. It was going to be a, Pain forever and a giant surgery every six months th- yep. for the rest of her life. And even that wasn't sustainable. One. So yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. but that was when I, I, I felt like the pair of us having owned a dog together like that. And the goal with going to you was just to open her up, right, and free yeah. her up. And and and, and I you saw the pictures. Yeah, <laughs> and that was her just just being a kelpie on a because she was a black <laughs> malinois, right? So being a she became a kelpie. It was, yeah, was running she, around. Except she swung off the ear of pigs, but she caught pigs and worked cattle and had her best life. Yeah. Like, there was no. I, I'll have to find it and see if I can post it. I remember you sent me a video one time of her trying to work cattle for the first time and she was amidst the cattle <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh, she was just no help. No, not at all. She had no idea. <laughs> like a city dog that was like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll get amongst this and, and was not only not helping the other dogs but was making their job way more difficult <laughs> but looked great, like looked like she was having this wonderful time. And she did. I mean, and she taught me lots about freeing up dogs because – as you fellas know, I can be quite controlling of dogs. Like mm-hmm. I can be, I reward big, but I, but I, I'm quite compulsive. Uh-huh. I push them quite tight sometimes, and I don't. I mean, I don't get explosions, and I don't get problems, but I know that I run a real fine line with it. Mm-hmm. And having a dog like Brandy taught me to let a dog be much freer. Like she'd already been set up so that she wasn't going to fail. Mm-hmm. Like you. Yeah, so she had a shit ton of obedience. Yeah, she could just come and have a good time. Yeah. And I, like, I purposely got her to blow me off commands and things like that just to build her up that much more. Like, uh-huh. she wasn't frightened to tell me to go and fuck myself. I mean, <laughs> <things> like, <laughs> she was a strong bitch, but she was a sick bitch, and yeah. that's what it was in the end. Yeah. Mm, she was a bit of a heartbreak, a that little dog. Yeah. yeah. And, and I felt really bad over that because of – well, obviously, to finally understand that she was actually in pain all those times, it wasn't that she was just like, ah, oh, fuck you and your training. It was, I'm trying as hard as I can, but this is all I've got. Yeah. This, this is heart and soul because this is the maximum of what I'm capable of. Actually really upset me to think about it. But then that's why I bring that up is that it's changed. Well, from then on, and it's not necessarily her, but from going to the schools, you've really changed your approach to everything, right? Yeah. Well, I hope so. I hope that I've learned that to layer in, you know, layer in the learnings from Bart and and layer not just learning from Bart though, that's the mistake I think some people make. I learnt something from everyone in the room mm-hmm. in both gold and, and silver and in particularly gold and then, you know, gold and silver again. There's a lot to be learnt from watching other people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And yeah. observation I, is very paramount in this industry. You know, like reading the room well. It's interesting you say that because Pat sort of picked you from the lineup in Silver School. When we were chatting one day, he um, he we just dropped Bart off back to the hotel and we were heading back to his place. And he said, 
I'm really intrigued with Katrina. Like she's a, a diamond in the rough, you know, like I'd like to get to know her a lot more. And that was a killer lineup of people there. You know, we had Sam there. We had Jazz there. I've met, that was yeah. the first time I've ever met Jazz. Yeah. Tennille Evans was there. Yeah. Jason Furman was there. Our show sponsor. Show sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> he was there and you were there. That was the first time I'd met you. You know, there were guys from the SAS there as well. So it was a it was a really interesting mix of personalities in the room at the time. Um, and Jason and Ben from Canine Solutions. Ben Gertz, yeah. Ben Gertz, yep. yep. Beck was there. Eden Delmain. There was like a um, – Nev Bennett. Nev there Bennett, was a, yep. A heap of – Exceptional trainers from all different walks. There was, there was a really, there was a really who's who lineup of people in the room at the time. You know, it was a really, it was a good mix of people. But you know, like I, like I said, I didn't know you from a bar of soap at that time, and and I don't think you really did at the moment. But um, yeah, Pat kept saying to me, "Oh, I'm really interested in Katrina. I really want to get to know her backstory." You know, like she's up in far north Queensland and got things going on. I really like to get to know about her, and from there, he just generated more interest in you over time. And I've been really fortunate that the connections that the Silver School got me, got me have, um, you know, changed not just that, but they've opened up friendships for me that I wouldn't have any other way and opened up opportunities for me. Like I'm not a professional in the dog world. Like I, I work to support my dog habit. <laughs> <laughs> which um, And your memes. <laughs> which my vet's really proud of. Yeah, like, yeah. I've had the opportunity to come here and train. I've had the opportunity to spend time with um, – Jay and Chad, when they've been over, yeah, you know it's um, it's been really good. Yeah, it opens up a big family to you, doesn't it? Yeah, mm. I think that's what's important. Um, you know, from from the crew of people, once you decide, people, oh, all right, you're in my crew, and I like you, and I I trust you with my dog. Is really, I mean, that's the main thing. That's what I'm talking about with that brandy and everything. Yeah. It's like here, you take her. You, you, she's better fit for you than for me. You take her. Once you have people like that, then you can bounce ideas off each other, and and I think it's good as well. There's not a lot of there's healthy competition involved in like, look what I can get my dog to do, but there's no sabotage type competition. No. It's all sort of a lift up type thing, which is I think. Yeah, we're very lucky that we have a supportive crew of people like that and people that you can trust to to send a dog to and be like, hey, can you put in your piece of this? Like, I know you're better at this part than me, so can you do that and then send it back and, and know that it's going to come back <laughs> that gets sold out from underneath you? Absolutely. There's um, Trust is a huge thing. It makes a big difference because you know that you can ask advice and people people that know how you're trying or, and know where your strengths and weaknesses are can mm-hmm. – can give you ideas and things that you haven't tried or tools from their toolbox. Mm-hmm. So it's um for me that's been been a real win. So something I want to talk about as well. Uh, you came to my seminar that I did with for Jason up in Queensland. I had to leave a party out of that that I normally talk about because it was you, and so I got you to talk about it instead. <laughs> but I talk about what you do now with your pups and the the way you charge the clicker and the way that you do a little bit of free shaping and, and how that affects their go home, right? Can you talk about that a little bit and what you've yeah. changed in the last sort of four or five years compared to what you did in the past, considering you bred your first litter of dogs and you are nine, right? So I'm guessing that you probably don't even remember how many you've done Along the way. Right. And I've worked a lot of litters for other people. So I haven't just, because I don't, I mean, I don't breed enough dog. I might breed one or two litters of big dogs and a couple litters of little dogs every year, but I whelp a lot of litters for other people as yeah. well. So, so but hang on, before, before we go on to that, let's, 
let me explain then, or you explain the type, the two types of dogs that you really breed at the moment. Because the little dogs I'm interested in. Everybody knows about the big dogs. <laughs> You're world famous for the big dogs, right? But tell everyone about the little dogs because, frankly, I want one. When I have the space, I'm going to get one. So, Jason Furman's got one. I know. Yeah. I've t- I talked to him about it. He's telling me how much he loves it <laughs> and what, it, what a fun little dog it is. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually pretty jealous. <laughs> so I'm part of the Mini Bull Project. Mm-hmm. We're a group of three breeders and I used to breed pugs. ANKC registered pugs. Yeah, right. And But I had pugs that would jump on the back of the ute. And there's plenty of videos of my pugs working cattle and mm-hmm. doing cool stuff. I mean, pugs are cool dogs if you let them breathe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Did you hear that, Marissa? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's got to be Bumble, a, my favourite pug in the whole world at the moment. That's got to be a quote that someone would say. <laughs> turn you into a meme. You've got to see this little pug over in Canada. This girl called Marissa has got this little pug called Bumble. And she is an amazing little pug. Like she flies around the property, yeah, chasing dogs all day long. And she's a bold little dog, bold and drivey, amazing, they're great Beautiful. little dogs. They're they? great little dogs. I used to have a pug called Stimpy. And they're um the only issues I have with pugs, hip dysplasia is a huge problem with them. Obesity, they're prone to obesity. Yeah, but that's and their a, eyes stick out further than their nose. Mm, yeah. But damaging their eyes is um. They're, they're, pr- they're prone to an, a knee issue, which yeah. is uh, luxating patella. Luxating yeah. patella, yeah, that's the one. That's the worst issue that a lot of them have got. Yeah, so they've got some health issues, but so I bred pugs, and one of the other people involved in our project bred Boston's, mm-hmm. and another one who was involved in our project bred French bulldogs, and we maybe close to eighteen or twenty years ago, we were talking about how good it would be to have crossbred dogs, like my band dogs, where we can eliminate health issues and choose from a broader gene pool and change the phenotype of dogs to be a healthier phenotype but still maintain those good qualities. And um, I guess the Minibull Project was born from that. Mm-hmm. So Maria Bryant in Charleville is, she's probably the primary breeder. I don't have enough time to focus as well as I'd like to on it. Yeah. But they're great little healthy brackies there. They're crossbred dogs. I make no qualms about that. Maria. How dare you, ma'am? How dare you? <laughs> Criminal. <laughs> but they're, you know, Maria's imported two dogs and we've. um. Yeah. So th- they're an example I use of, yeah, they're a crossbred dog, right? But every fuck, these are not, these are the two dogs I have that happen to be in my yard and now I've got a crossbreed. Okay. This is a, uh, you guys have been doing it for nearly 20 years. So you're. Breeding with a purpose, and that purpose is to make a, a healthy little dog That's that is a kids. that is a pet. Yeah. It's yep. still a bracky type. Yeah, they're cute as fuck. We'll we'll, we'll have to post some. Photos they look like little they piggies. Are, they're, <laughs> yeah. they're super cute little dogs, uh, and all my involvement with them are they're very bold little healthy little. I mean, first health is your you guys main thing. Yeah. Health and temperament was your you first. Must have a good temperament. Yeah, but they're all they're good little workers when they're made into workers, but they're awesome little family pets and they're a cute little, I call them fake Frenchies. That's whatever yeah, people ask me what they Frenchies. are. So they're like, a, they're like a Frenchie knockoff minus the problems, yeah. right? which I think is a pretty good description, right? Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. And, and they go, just go to like mostly like inner city pet homes, right? Yeah. Cause I track them a little bit cause everybody gets a, a, 
log oh, on. Oh, you would, yeah. Yeah, Maria's does an amazing job. So everybody that gets a dog from her gets a login to my video series. She sends me the email addresses of them. I make them a login. Uh, she pays for that, you know, and doesn't add it to the price of the puppy. So, like, you guys do an amazing – like, when you talk about ethics, you guys have got that shit wound up, right? Well, we like, want them to stay in their homes. We don't – I mean, you breed those little puppies and you hold them in their hand as it – you know, hold them in your hands as That's they take right. their first breath. That's right. You owe those little yep. buggers. Yeah, like, yeah. You you have to be a certain type of narcissist to like breed puppies and not care about the future of them. Like I cannot not care about the pups that I've bred. Like you know them. Like you've known them since the day they hit the ground. You know, like you you're weighing them. You're changing their collars. You're making sure that they're kept alive, you're making sure the bitch is doing a good job of raising them. Like you become personable with them. I understand that completely. Yeah. And yeah. you, like as a breeder, it's our job to stack the deck in that dog's favour before it's born, before its parents are born. We need exactly. to be stacking the deck in their favour. And that's the whole point genetics, of Genetics, epigenetics, everything. Yep. Like everything all of it. It's got to be a plan. And then once they're born, it's our job to stack the deck in the favour of their owner. Mm-hmm. The I've changed what I do lots and I'll continue to change until I get it right. So at the second with pups, I'm looking at trying to set the pup up for the home it's going to and generally set the pup up so it can go to any home. Yep. So tell us a little bit about that. (laughs) So if I can't do anything, I can probably set a pup up on a clicker not too bad. Mm -hmm. So they – um. I do all different types of things. So I scatter feed and I'll scatter feed amongst different ages. I'll feed out of, I've got a pool set up and I'll fill it with things and I'll scatter feed in there and amongst all different ages too. I I don't know if you've seen my videos of. I think so, yeah. Yeah, there's been a whole heap of little pups jumping in amongst the big ones and there's no competition because they all understand that if you were silly enough to be aggressive over food, not only do you miss out, I take you out of the picture and you'll never, ever. You don't get another shot. You don't get another shot. You'll be very hungry till the next time. Yeah. Well, that's and a, that's an important point that a lot of people miss out on because that's one of my critical things about scatter feeding is that people create aggression in limiting resources. But if you do it like you're doing it, like you're removing the dog for being aggressive, then they start learning that that's, the, uh, that's one of the behaviours that's going to limit my access to food. And no, like people hit them and... You know, do all different kinds of things. I know, Smack aggression on the begets nose. aggression. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. the dog just thinks, well, I have to drive harder then. So yeah. they load they, aggression instead yeah. of curing it. So nice and quietly just pick him up and take him out of the picture. Yep. Just negative punishment. Yeah. You're going to be aggressive. You you don't get to maintain Sorry, it. Dude, yep. you've chosen not yep. to eat. Yep. That's that's one of the choices you make not to eat. And yep. Like they could eat again in 10 minutes' time. Like I might set them guessing so that. I might put them away, wait 10 minutes, get them out, and I might throw another handful in there. And I'll throw a handful of biscuits in there every time I walk past. Yeah. I try and do some other things, like puppies that I know that are going to little pet homes, I'll try and get them to – I'll reward their calm. We should just stop there for two secs because I want people to really – if you're breeding and you just listen to what Katrina was talking about, like that's not just a little thing to skip over. That's a really important pearl that point about negatively punishing the behavior for being aggressive. So I just want to emphasize that point. Like it's really important because a lot of people miss that point entirely and they create aggression instead of curing it. When we look at the things that cause the big problems for dogs, so I've, I'm a bit of a, I guess, a weirdo. Well, we all know I'm a weirdo. And I'm a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> but 
I looked at the reasons and I will keep looking at the reasons. Why don't dogs last in homes? It's because the product the dog we're selling isn't fit for purpose. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole heap of reasons for that. Maybe the owner wanted a dog that looked like a German Shepherd, acted like a old lab. Maybe it wasn't the same as their old dog that they had for 10 years because yep. the behavior is different. Maybe it's just the wrong choice of breed. But a lot of it's got to do with how we as breeders set up set up the dog. Like, do we set dogs up to fail? Yeah, a lot of them fall out of love with their behaviour. Yep. Mm. And, I mean, people do the same with their teenage children too. Like, don't get me wrong, but how do we make those pups be successful in those homes? I charge a clicker so that I know that there's a tra- if they reach out for a trainer that the trainer's got a tool they can use later. I teach those pups to move away from pressure and I teach those pups how to apply pressure. So, you know, push through my hand to get fed, wait calmly, and I reward lots of calm behaviour, especially little pet pups. Mm -hmm. I can make them wild, but it's also – and, you know, I've done that for people's dogs. So Eden just had one of my little bulldogs and Mm -hmm. I'd made him wild for Eden. Yep. But – Generally, I try to make them, you know, I try to make them so that they're going to be successful in their new home. And it's not always easy to know where that dog's future is going to be. Mm. I I socialise them with kids and I'm actually, I've been focusing, especially with my big fellas, on trying to breed dogs that don't require the levels of socialisation of some others. And I was talking to Pat about it earlier. With some of my brood dogs, I'll keep, and I've traditionally done this, I'll keep back some of my dogs and purposely unsocialize them like that big blue dog that was down here. Yep. So he was a dog I would have kept to potentially breed from. Mm-hmm. I keep them back unsocialized and then submerse them in a difficult situation like that and watch their reaction. Am I breeding from dogs that are truly calm or am I looking at my ability as a trainer? And that's the part that I have to really separate because I think as a breeder, it's our job to make sure that we're breeding, you know, for, we need to look at the genetics and we need to look at a whole lot more. As a breeder, it's our job to stack the deck for a dog. As a trainer, it's our job to fit the missing pieces. Yep. And the fact that I'm interested in both sometimes clouds and water for me, so I've got to be really specific about what's my training mm-hmm. and what's the genetics in front of me and how can I separate those. Yeah. I see that in that, you know, we've trained together. We go long months without seeing each other and then you'll be at something and I see you there and you've got different dogs every time. And more often than not, you'll say, this is this first, this this dog's first time off the farm. Like he's never been out in the real world. And what I've never seen in your dogs is a dog that is sketchy and fearful and shut down. And I see, if I can make my living, uh, well, not so much now, but dealing with dogs that have had everything right have had everything given every opportunity. They live in the city. They're socialized like fucking crazy. They do everything right and are still nerve bags that are going to require a ongoing management and training for the rest of their life because there were, the genetic selection wasn't there. And it was more often than not in showline dogs, you see this with where it was bred to look a particular way and who gives a shit what's going on between its ears. Whereas what I definitely have noticed from your dog, you remember at this, at last time I saw you in Queensland, you brought that tiny puppy yeah, and was one of, I mean, there were some good dogs there, but was a, a very high performing dog at eight weeks or 12 weeks old or wherever he was. 
and was interacting with everybody. And I say, oh, so you've had this one out a fair bit. No, this is time ever. Yeah, this is you are the first people he's ever meeting other than myself. And so I, I know exactly what you mean in that you are really trying to make sure as a breeder, you're identifying the genetic traits that will be passed on rather than the things that you have through successful training and, and um, preparation have made a dog appear to feel, a, you, well, he is feeling a particular way, but not inherently. Like it's he's been conditioned to perform and feel a particular way rather than that's his natural state, which I think is fucking cool because not too many people – First of all, have the capacity to do that, but second, the interest. Once upon a time, the outcome for a dog that failed that test wasn't ideal. Mm-hmm. But hopefully my skills are, well, I believe my skills of it as a trainer are such that rather than wash out dogs and, and fail them, I can fill those gaps for them Yeah, and make them into a very usable dog. But their genes shouldn't continue on, Yeah, yeah. but they're still a very solid usable dog that can – live a wonderful life somewhere and do a job or be a pet and yeah, mm. be pretty cool. As a caveat to everything we've been discussing, I don't have an issue with show people with show dogs and working people with working dogs or anything in between. What I do have an issue with is when people are lazy and don't do their job well, don't do their research well when they're manipulating genetics and life and so forth. That's the only thing that – that's the only criteria that I think people need to focus on because I've had people, you know, in show situations that have contacted me and said, oh, you and Pat are very hard on show people and so forth. Well, I'm not hard on show people who do the right thing. You know, like if they're they're actually breeding worthwhile dogs and they're actually looking to improve standards and guidelines in what they're doing overall, I don't have an issue with what they're doing. It's just that, you know, Pat's – right with what he said before, that there's a lot of people who don't even give a fuck about what's going on between the dog's ears. They'll just constantly be pumping good-looking dogs out who are frail. You know, they've got nothing to offer and they just fall apart at the drop of a hat and they're actually a nervous wreck. All they're good for is is standing still in a ring for 30 seconds and getting judged on, on criteria of the way they looked, but there's actually nothing else to offer in that dog and they'll go and breed from it. Yeah, and look, I, I'm I'm as critical of working people as well. Exactly, and, right? And I get to get on my high horse. Having or even never, pet breeders. Yeah, well, Doesn't breeders matter. of dogs Anyone. in general. Yeah. I get to get on and my children. high horse and make complaints <laughs> about them having never done it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> having never bred a dog in my life and, and having no plans to, uh, I get to say all kinds of outrageous things. Yeah, but you're on the other end of it. You're yeah, that's right. I'm dealing with it at the, the end. After and, product. and when what, what really fucking grinds my shit is when someone will tell you about all these deficits of their dog and and, and and especially in working dogs, like I'll go and I'll like work someone's female and it's fucking junk. Like I say, this is this dog, we shouldn't even continue training because this dog is going to only become dangerous if you do this because they're this lining is up nerve. for mating. Yeah. And then they're like, well, yeah, well, you know, we're, we're, we're doing breeding this, it. we're breeding, doing this breeding. I'm like, well, we why? want the kids to experience what puppies are like. Yeah. Well, not even that, but it's like mm. I can get money. That That's the main thing. It's like yeah. I can get money. And I said, well, not from anyone I fucking know because I'm going to tell everyone that your bitch is terrible. And that they shouldn't be buying a fucking dog from you, and and that she should just be she should be calmed down and made a pet, not like continually amped up. So yeah, I am I am hard on breeders, but it's because someone has to be right, and and you like you not someone, lots of people are, but you have to compel people to make a better product. And it's like I've been saying since I learned about it, like I just won't buy a dog that doesn't have the clicker charged because it, it's not necessarily that I can't, it's not at all that I can't train a dog that hasn't had the clicker charged. That's not that in the slightest. It's that I don't want a dog from the 
breeder who's not prepared to do that. Mm. If I say to a breeder, hey, all I need you to do is for the last two weeks, six to eight weeks, just click this before you put the food down. And they say, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, what's the chances that they're doing everything else very well? Like what the fucking chances are zero because that doesn't, I'll post you the clicker. It's going to come in the mail. All I need you to do is push the button once and put the food on the ground. And that's going to make my, my, that's going to save me two weeks when I get that puppy. I'm going to come with like, you just did two weeks of work for me. And if they won't do that, it's not that it, because I can't train that dog. Of course I can load the clicker. No problem. That That's not the issue. It's the fact that they won't do that. And then, and it's like, well, I doubt you're fucking cleaning the whelping box because if you if you're so lazy, you won't push the button. Then what's the point, right? Like, and and it's not through it. It's not through lack of knowledge because I'm trying to give you the knowledge, right? It's that you won't modify your program. You think your dogs are perfect, and they're not. There's no none are. Right, and as a breeder, you have to be prepared to accept failures, and it's tough. Like, it's tough that I've sent dogs into homes that. Aren't as good as they should be. Well, you can't predict everything, right? I mean, Mother right. Nature is unpredictable in itself. That's the thing is a lot of people try and control everything they can, but nature has plans otherwise. Like it will shift the paradigm completely on its ear. And you'll think to yourself, well, on paper, that shouldn't have happened. But we can't plan for, like we said before, when we're talking about genes and epigenetics and uh, anything that happens as a lack of nutrition or whatever, it could be a range of different things. But I think what we need to do is just do the best we can. And if there is a problem, be honest about it. Like rather than being that type of breeder who sneaks that last junk puppy out and tells people that, oh, this is the special puppy that we were going to hold on to and we were going to keep for itself. Like don't be that person. If there's a problem with the puppy, just say to people, hey, we've got a, pu- a pup with problems, you know, I'm not even going to sell this one. You can have it if you want to, if you can give it a good home and try and do the best by it. But, you know, you've got to understand that you're going to be up for some work with this pup. Just tell people the, the truth. Be ethical. And I think for some breeders, you know, as a breeder you become a giver of life. It's pretty hard for a lot of breeders to face the idea that they might have bred a dog that there mm. isn't a suitable home for anywhere. Yeah. Or it's it's it being alive becomes a welfare can welfare issue for that dog yeah so i think that we've pushed breeders into a space where a lot of them don't feel comfortable anymore putting their hand on their heart and saying i went and talked to my vet i got some advice from other people and i had to make the decision to put this dog down and it's tough like i don't envy anyone who's ever been put in that position Mm -hmm. but sometimes as a breeder you've got to do the shitty jobs yeah you know there's an old European saying they say to be a good breeder you also have to be a good killer mm-hmm. and, and selective and and that's that's part of being custodian of a breed right yeah and our society but our society doesn't accept that wastage anymore so we've got to once upon a time we could breed whole litters and wash whole litters out and you know like treat them like all the good European breeders treated dogs but we can't anymore there's no room in our society for that so we've got to find something to do so we don't have wastage yeah that's be more selective in what you do breed. Be mm. more selective in what we breed, give them the best opportunities that we can. And if we've got to face the fact that we've bred a dog that there just isn't a good welfare outcome for or there isn't a suitable home for in the world, then we have to get advice from other people and try and work out the best course of action for that dog. And it might be that I talk to someone like you and you go, you know what, I do know the perfect home for that dog. Yeah. It's about creating that big network that can help us. And the least you could do is make sure you de-sex that dog. 
yeah. the least. That's the, that's the very first plan that should be happening. If that dog's going to live, then it should be desexed. And that's the problem is there's a lot of dogs on that list who people will have a plan to breed it. You just think, what the hell is going on here? We early desex our little dogs and it's a pretty tough issue. I've risk assessed it and I'll continue to risk assess it as more information becomes available from the scientific community and more anecdotal information becomes available. Currently, we're not sitting at any, and we dissex at between six and eight weeks. Wow. We dissect little puppies. But I can't guarantee, I don't, if I sell you a dog, I don't own it anymore. I can't, I can't sell you a fridge and tell you what beer to put in it. (laughs) I can't sell you a dog and tell you what to do with its gonads. Like, that's not my responsibility. I can't influence what you do. People have contracts. I can't put a contract on a dog that's legally binding unless I co-owner it. I can't, I can pay for the sex, I can pay for the sexing and it doesn't mean you'll do it. I can do whatever I want and at the second we don't have a better option. But we're not sitting at a lot of health problems and this is over 20 years and hundreds of dogs between three different breeders and a lot of different vets to sexing. Mm. We haven't seen yet health problems in our little fellas that, you know, that are out there that we know that early dissexing can cause. And we've got to weigh those those problems against the, you know, the benefits of early dissexing against the problems that it, or, you know, the cons of not dissexing. Like how many more litters would have been born out of cute little dogs and yeah, the neighbour's kelpie jumps the fence and gets a little tiny bulldog bitching pup and she dies whelping and, you know, there's lots of, and just the behaviour of male dogs that are undersexed, you know, they grow up without a lot of dog aggression and. Yeah, it's so difficult to balance. So that's interesting. I didn't know you did that, and, and but you guys are very much in contact with all your owners, right? You guys track that and follow the life of these puppies because I know you do that. I've seen that yep. online. So you are following through with, as you say, you've you've done the risk assessment and you think that it's it's the way to go. Yeah, and we've had a couple of incontinence issues where we've um we've tracked it down to a particular mating. Yeah, right. And good data on the breeders' part can can help work out whether it's potentially a genetic issue, is it a, um, you know, is it a genetic issue, is it an issue of how we raise those pups, mm-hmm. is it an issue in the home, like is it an issue, are the dogs being kept obese, are they, you know, what what's happening in their new home? So we can try and look at all the data or is it just one out of every hundred dogs will become incontinent regardless of whether it's dissexed or not. Mm-hmm. So it's... um. And you guys keep a very detailed record, right? Like you have sort of your own bloodline tracking type thing of all your dogs yeah. and everything, right? I am. Um, well, I also breed um, stud livestock and right. poultry. So keeping records of pedigrees is, is what I do. Yeah. But yeah, even my in my band dogs, I can give some people, a, in some spots their pedigrees are 12 generations deep where I've had my hands on, on each dog in the in the pedigree and I can tell you where it was weak and where it was strong and why I bred it, why it's still included in the bloodline, mm-hmm. what it has to offer. Yeah. And after all these years, I can see dogs come back. I yeah, can, um, right. I can go, you are, you had the habits of your grandfather or. Yeah, yeah. Just little tiny things. So it's, um, yeah, it's interesting to see how it goes over the years. That's cool. I like that you have such tracking of all that and you're mm. still in touch with all the people, especially now with Facebook. You guys have a mini bulldog. Uh, what are they called? Mini. Yeah. 
Toy Bulldogs. Toy, yeah, so you have your own group and that's all tracked. I think I'm in the group, but I don't, I don't see a lot yeah. of – Yeah, there's two groups. There's an owner's group and there's our group where we can see our stuff and there's an owner's group so the owners can have like birthday play parties for their and dogs <laughs> and play dates and stuff like that, which is really cool that they keep in contact. Yeah. And, and they're there to support each other as well. You know, yeah, they yeah. can offer each other support. So I've seen in the group there over time like people have had, you know, like – terrible things happen in their personal lives and other people have helped them with their dogs and it's it's a really we didn't start that community but it's a great community and yeah that's cool it's really good to watch it's you know it's marvelous to see how people can work together when they want to Mm -hmm. so uh we were just talking before what dogs have you got at the moment what's next on the horizon for you what are you what are you up to i've probably got a bit of a mix of dogs and i've got um my black russian terrier yeah, he's still going. Yeah, she's still going. She's a good, she's a good bitch. I'm starting to bring her back into work. Uh huh. Did um, you get her through Rod? No, she's from. I can't even pronounce. Starts with a T. She's from a lady down near Toowoomba. Okay. She's um uh, from working bloodlines. Mm-hmm. I pushed her too hard. I thought I knew a bit more a few years ago. <laughs> as as we always, yeah. you know, hindsight's. Wonderful, wonderful thing, thing yeah. Mm. yeah. So I pushed her a bit hard, and and she was actually sick. So she had um a bit of a, a kidney infection. She was suffering from reoccurring infections, and I was pushing her hard and wondering why I wasn't getting results. Yeah. So I've given her time off to be a dog and recover from the scars I caused, and just she coming has, she's back. A nice little bitch. Yeah. What nice big hairy bitch? I've got um. <laughs> <laughs> I've got um. Uh, Deutsch Strata, an imported dog. I don't know what that is. I'd like a German wirehead pointer, working version of a German wirehead pointer. Okay. He's a very tough dog. He's uh probably doesn't meet the standard well in that he doesn't he's zero tolerance of poor handling or other people. Yeah, right. Okay. Very nasty dog. I love him. But he just, <laughs> <laughs> I love him. I was gonna dearly. say that sounds like your kind of dog, right? He doesn't take shit from anyone and yeah. he um doesn't take mishandling at all. So it's good for me because I don't mind that in a dog. I don't. Yeah. I don't, you don't give them cause to, to come back at you. No. And if he did, I'd know that it was my fault. Mm-hmm. So I'm good. We, we have a good relationship. <laughs> yeah. So I've got them in my yag and I've got a few um, stumpy tail cattle dogs again. Yeah. Just because I, I like them and I live in an environment where I can have dogs that um, I've got old hairy Smithfields. Yeah. So they're um, a different type of dog with a with a temperament that probably doesn't suit today's society. Right. But I'd, they suit me. Yeah. And um, I'm fortunate to live in an environment where they can be, you know, yeah, enriched yeah, you can get by. Get away with that, yeah. Yeah. If they bite someone, then it's someone's fault. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll probably I've got my band dogs and I've got my little bulldogs. I'll probably um, and a really elderly whippet that's Joanne's. So in the next few years, I'll probably um, scale down, scale down my breeding a little bit more. Yeah. And I don't know what direction I'll be in. I'd like to come and compete in PSA. That's, mm-hmm. that's been a goal of mine. But every time I uh, get going, there's always a bit of a drama of a yeah. There's a curse upon you. For a that. curse upon me for that. But yeah. we'll get there. And I've got a couple little dogs. I'll push into GRC. Yeah. They've got the you've got the goods for it. Yeah. You, I remember when you first were showed some interest in coming to do the bite work stuff and you brought Jeep and that was a learning day for me, right? Because you, you put this dog on the back tie and all the traditional things that I know how to 
bring a Malinois out to like what kind of breed was a Jeep? He was a He's bear a dog, dog right? yeah. yeah. So all the things that I know how to do to bring up a dog like that just wasn't working on him. And you can't say this dog doesn't have prey because he has it, right? He chases prey for a living. He's he's a pig dog. He's had he's nailed he's chased prey his whole life. And so it was an interesting one for me. And we got him going. Remember, he got him right into yeah. it. But that was a curse because then he got he got killed, didn't he? Yeah, he had a brain tumor. Oh, fucking hell. But it was a it was a real learning curve for me because I remember thinking, hey, I know this works. And uh, I it it's too easy for me to say, oh, a dog's got no prey drive, but there's a lot of there's a lot of carcasses that are evidence that he does. Yeah. Right. So like how do we get this out? And it was very interesting for me to try and then come backwards from a dog who's like caught the real prey and now try and convince him that this rag I have on the end of a line is also prey. <laughs> right. Like this is something you should be interested in. But he got going, right? And he was biting it and he was yeah. he was getting into it. And I used a lot of um for unforced force fetch with him too. Like yeah. once he understood that concept. He wasn't doing his best work, but he'd do it. Yeah, yeah. And he had a great bite. Yeah. For a dog with no teeth. Yeah. For an <laughs> <laughs> but it was about showing him you're allowed to do this, right? Yeah. Like you're allowed. This is that that unforced force fetch unlocked the the part in his brain that was like, oh, I'm allowed to bite stuff. This is this is it. And then then the movement got him going. And yeah. So it's fun. I, I really enjoy that. I really enjoy like it's funny when you say I didn't know you had that boxer as a, a off breed Schutzen dog to start with. Because I, I kind of get the shits with people when they say, oh, I'm going to do PSA and I'm going to do it with an off-breed. I think that's the wrong – or a bite sport and do it with an off-breed. What I like, the, that's the wrong sequence for me. It, it's got to be I have this off-breed and I want to do a bite sport with it, not yeah. that I'm going to set out to – I've chosen the sport and then I'm going to get a dog that's totally unsuitable <laughs> and try and force it I want to be it. a magical unicorn and I'll yeah. be the only person in the whole world to get yeah. a whip it to excel at bite sport. Yeah, exactly, right? And then people say, oh, I want the challenge. I say, well, the, the fucking game is challenging enough. I've got a dog purposely built for it and, and I find it difficult enough. You don't need to impose any more difficulties upon yourself. The thing is, though, if I'm – I think that we've all struggled with different people over the year in, years in clubs and any kind of sport where if you're in a sport, if if you're in a sport where a certain breed is excelling and that club specialises in the training of that breed and you want to have your first dog, get that fucking breed. Yeah, yeah. Don't and, – and ask them about bloodlines and not just because – you want to be part of their cool gang because they have the skills to work that dog. Yeah, experience, yeah. And they understand how that bloodline is going to work and develop and when to stop and when to start and when to layer in certain things. It's really easy. I mean, I start my dogs in defence and that's not where you've been. That's not your strength yeah, as yeah. a decoy. Yeah. I haven't seen decoy for a little while, but what's no, the no, strength no. as a decoy? No, no, not at all. But prey certainly is. Yeah, yeah. So my dogs are started in defence and – I've got someone at home who's come and done a little bit of agi work and that's how they start. But they're stable enough that after it's the same as the, the reason I misunderstood defence for so long is because my dogs are defensive, but when the threat's over, the same person who they've been yeah. trying to eat can come and pat them. There's no yeah, well bullshit that's, from the dog. That's, that's the genetic part that most people are missing yeah. and that they've got defence, that they're working dogs in defence because that's all – the, that's all they have, and it's it's that the dog is nervy, and so it's very easy to to start in defence. Whereas your dogs can start in defence, but then 
they they understand this is no longer the, the same picture. The, the picture has changed. I'm not under threat, and 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 they can they don't hold a grudge in that same way. Like, hey, you just scared me five minutes ago. I I can't allow you anywhere near me now, in spite of the fact that you no longer possess pose a threat. Yeah, and it's about the dog being confident in itself too. Yeah. Like, I can destroy you if you come. Yeah, you might not be a threat to. now, but you know I can destroy you if I have to. Yeah, yeah. If that if that turns. Yeah, and that's the. I guess the really difficult part about defensively bred dogs is we have to make sure that they are that stable. Otherwise, you get a dog that everything becomes a trigger for it. Yeah, it's a fear biter. Yep. Well, the problem with defense is it's always recallable. So it, it only takes minute amounts of stimuli and the dog's back in defense. Yeah. That's the issue. Well, and that's it's our job as a breeder and, and as a trainer to a degree to lengthen that space so that the dog – Defense is an important skill. Mm. It's an important skill set, but it should be in combination of – it should be a good ratio between defense and prey. And this is the issue that people have is that they breed such thinly nerved dogs that they're so highly defensive that they trigger so easily yeah. and then they're uncontrollable. So there is no cue to control the dog because the dog just switches into defense and then it becomes dangerous and it becomes a liability. Whereas a dog that has a good combination of defense and prey, like there is a good selection between it, the dog can be easily cued and controlled because the dog understands I do this for a purpose in order to gain this. Yeah. So the dog is not thinking through fear. It's thinking through drive and ambition. This is a, a purposeful behavior in order to be rewarded by it. So you're not having a dog that's constantly walking on eggshells around an environment. And that's the problem that a lot of people induce. When well, how screwed up would it be for you to have to walk through life being terrified of everything and think that everything's going to attack you all the time? Mm. What a well, that's, what a it's horrible terrible. life to set our dogs up for. It's yeah. terrible genetics and also terrible. It's a combination of terrible genetics and terrible training. Yeah, but I mean, what a terrible way for an animal it is, to have to live. It is absolutely. It is terrible because it's it's generated through fear. Yeah, and. I think a lot of people don't understand that that's actually what's happening in a dog's brain. When they're like that nervy, reactive dog, it's because they're constantly thinking, fuck, I'm under threat all the time. Everything's yep. going to become a threat. Everything's a potential trigger for a vet. It's, yeah. um, well, then it becomes instinctive goal-orientated. The, the dog thinks, I have to do this to escape this situation. Yeah. Like, I cannot, there's no other way to control it other than being extremely violent to try and get out of it. And that's terrible. No, it not, is terrible. Not much fun for dogs or well, Not fun at all. Hey, um, I want to switch gears before we wind up. Mm. And Katrina, I want to tell you something personal. Mm-hmm. I always thought that you were a real tough sort of outback sort of country girl when I first met you, but you're not. You're actually a real big softie. <laughs> Damn it, Glenn, don't tell anyone. I, I know, but I was at the last seminar I saw you at when we were here. I was going through a bit of a bad spot. And there's been people who have been – you know, like they'll walk through past me on day to day and they won't notice it and you picked it on a twig. Like we were walking out, we are packing up one night and you grabbed me and said, hey, man, is everything all right? You don't look right. And um, I was faking my way through it. I was just going through some – I was overwhelmed by a few things. Like a few things were happening and I just wasn't in a good frame of mind. I wanted to let you know that I really appreciated that because it was you who made me stop and think about it on a deeper level because I was pretending it wasn't happening and just like trying not to acknowledge it but it was something that needed acknowledging and it was you that helped me pick myself back up from there. So from me to you, I just want to say a very heartfelt thank you. Oh, thanks, Glenn. I appreciate that. The thing about that too, Katrina, is I know you were going through your own turmoil at the time. So I think that, you know, the fact that you were dealing with your own strife and you were managing enough to be 
empathetic enough to pick up on somebody else was a really kind act. So, yeah, it was huge appreciation. Thank you. Thank you. There you go. A bit of love. <laughs> no. Yeah. <Aww. laughs> well, no, we should wind up. We've been talking for a long time, but I, I, I'm glad that you can't. I'm glad that we've got the time to get you on here. Like I said, I feel like I'm really happy that you're in part of my dog family and people that I can bounce ideas off and trust and, and, and I get good feedback from, right? Um, and not always kind. Well, no, it is always kind. What's the saying? Constructive feedback is not always easy to receive, right? right? And you're a person that I know I can trust to say, hey, what do you think of this? And, and if it's a shit idea, fucking <laughs> tell, tell me it's a shit idea. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? So I really appreciate that. And I'm not joking when I say you're one of my favorite people. So there we go. Thank no, you. From Lots of love. Lots of love. So Thank many you. feels. Like just the feels are just unbelievable. No, right? Yeah. All right. I'm going to do the wind up. You're going to do the wind up. Yeah. Hey, got anything to say? How can people get in contact with you if they want to? Just how can they? Can don't, they? Um, you know, don't. you need to do. <laughs> you need to stop using your personal Facebook page for memes and start your own, uh, like your own meme page. You need to so that people can just follow it and they don't have to like you don't have to be friends with them on Facebook. You need to start a memes page. I've put that out there. You got to do it. <laughs> well, I share them for my friend. Well. Used to share them for my friends, and now people friend request me just to see more memes. And just I go, to see your oh, memes. dude, are you ready for this ride? Pat <laughs> <laughs> had to had to like like snooze you for a while so he could stop seeing your memes because he said, "I'm so fucking distracted by <laughs> by Katrina's memes." He said, "I almost can't get any work done because I'm laughing all day at what she's." I was doing up. a lot of work um, online, and it was you know, it's Facebook is. Uh, for me, I have to be on there for work, right? And I just kept getting fucking bogged down by your <laughs> memes. And I'll be like, oh, I just spent 20 minutes laughing my ass off to memes. And not like, not that I'm complaining. It was a good 20 minutes, but for 20 minutes, like I'm, it's gone. Yeah. And I need that back. So I had, I said to Glenn, I have to fucking unfollow her. And then I'm, and then like it was about six weeks or something. I was missed like, you. I missed you. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to go back into the settings and re follow you. Um, so anyway, yeah, expect a million friend requests now. Well, I can tell when news followers are overseas doing seminars, even if I don't know where you are, because I suddenly get friend requests from like <laughs> some bizarre place in Canada or. <laughs> I'm just oh, shit. Well, yeah, I, I have a whole section in that my thing talking about you and your puppies. So yeah, you, you go with me everywhere I go. Oh, thank you. All right. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. Oh, so can people get in contact with your heart and soul canine? Yeah, they well, is there a Facebook page for that? Yeah, there is, but I probably don't. I guess if people can have a look at the Mini Bull Project yeah. on Facebook, if they want to have a look at our Mini Bulls, the Australian Band Dog Alliance, if they want to have a look at our Band Dogs. Well, most of my pups are sold before they're born, so yeah. it's a bit disheartening for some people. Yeah, but they can have a look. But they I can mean, queue up for just it. Talk, they just spend, if, they want to, if they want to wait and queue, that's fine. We just spent an hour and a half talking about how good they are and how impressed they <laughs> are. So people are going to want to see these puppies, even if not to buy one. The people, most most of the people listening to this are going to be in the states anyway. But so they, but you have you have sent I've plenty sent of dogs, dogs to, to the states. states right? I've yeah. sent dogs to Syria, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, world famous bandog breeder. Yeah, wow. throughout Asia to Guam, heaps to New Guinea and yeah. Wow, well, I um, didn't even US. know that until yeah. you just said that. Now I had no idea. World famous band dog she is, breeder. You are the world famous band dog breeder. Undisputed. Oh. Wow. Queen of memes. Undisputed. Well, this is the thing is what we've been talking about for the last hour and a half is that like they're fucking legit. Like they are, they're what the breed is meant to be. Yeah. Right. I've won a heap of, um, when Canine Pro Sports was in Australia, I won a heap of 
stuff with that. I've got a dog on the Canaan Pro Sports World Hall of Fame. What's that? What's that involved it before was, we wrap um, up? Because we Canaan need- Pro Sports was a sport that was. Um, Jerry said that he looked at Butch yeah. Capel started a sport back then, and Jerry went and had a look at that before he started PSA. So along the same lines, but yeah, same same but different. Same same but different. Yeah, it's a, it was like a a streetier version of traditional yeah. ring sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, that um, that saying's really taking off now. Same, same, but different. Yeah, <laughs> comes yeah. from Thailand. Yeah, yeah, I know. But everyone in the states is saying it to me now. Like they'll send me a, like a message and then go a little giggle afterwards, going, "Ah ha ha, same, same, but different." <laughs> <laughs> you and the Thai people. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paranoia. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Uh, if you want to support the show, the best way to do that is Patreon. Three bucks a month gets you an extra episode there, 10 bucks a live Q&A about that episode. And if you want to buy me a yacht, that's fine too. Um, I've always wanted one. Just you? Yeah, you, you don't know how to sail. Uh, oh, I can learn. <laughs> not on my yacht. Uh, <laughs> very stinky. Very, very rude. <laughs> if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that or, is Or, or, or you could wear a beautiful Teespring. Oh, yeah, Teespring. Yeah, you keep forgetting Teespring. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Um, get on Teespring, buy some merch. If you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is via email. Send us an e- email to info at com. And, Glenn, you can play your music now.